You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. So let's, uh, let's get started. We got so much to cover, but let's, let's frame it this way as we begin. So my mom has this picture in her house of my wife and I riding on Splash Mountain at Disney World. Now, how many of you have ridden on Splash Mountain? And how many of you have enjoyed Splash Mountain? Okay, these are people who need help, obviously, <laughs> and we're glad that you're here. So now, two pieces of information that you need to know about my wife and I. One is that my wife loves roller coasters. The feeling of impending death is just so delightful to her. Uh, the second thing you need to know is that I despise roller coasters, and the, if, I'm telling you, if, if you think, and this is a little judgy, and I'm going to tell you that right off the bat, it is a little judgy, but I'm t- I don't understand people that like, I just love the feeling of like free falling from high heights. Like you need counseling and or shock therapy to fix that. Like you need help. I mean, I get, and, and the thing is like, I get motion sick so easy. Like I can't even sit in the back seat of a car. I get car sick. So, I mean, you can imagine how I am on uh, uh, some type of ride. But anyway, back to this picture. Um, the funny part is, first thing you need to know about the picture, and someday I got to get it from her, so that, or at least take a picture of it. Um, we're in the front row because my wife said that would be more fun. And, I, and she's like, oh, you don't want to sit in the front row? Where do you want to sit? And I'm like, I want to sit in the gift shop. But that's apparently not on the table, so I agreed to go. And so anyway, we go on the ride and the picture kind of tells the whole story because at the end of uh, at, at, uh, on the picture, because you know, there's three drops in, if you're familiar with this ride, there's like the first drop, then there's the middle drop, which I think is the worst drop, the one in the dark. Then there's the third drop, which is the one that you're like, you can see all of the magic kingdom, makes you question all of your life choices up until that moment. And, uh, and then you kind of, you, you go, you fall, uh, you know, down. And, um, and so my wife is like this. So happy. I mean, as happy as can be, so much joy. And the only way to describe it is for me to pick, show you what my face looked like. It was like this. <laughs> like that, holding on to that bar. Like that was the only thing keeping me alive. And now the thing about the bar, and, and if you've ever done that, and I recognize that it's not rational, but the, holding on to the bar doesn't actually help you. It isn't making you any safer. But we have this thing in, in, instinctually as humans that we just feel like when things are out of control that we've got to hold on to something. And we all do this, and we find ourselves in circumstances where things are out of control, and so we will fixate even on the smallest thing to give us the feeling like we're in control. And because if we were to ask, honestly, the, the worst feeling in the world is feeling like things are happening and we're not in control of any of it. Now, the reality is, and, and I didn't understand this when I was in my 20s, and I don't think I understood it in my 30s, and, and now that I'm on the back half of my 40s, I'm, I'm really understanding this, is that very little in your life is in your control. That doesn't mean that everything is totally out of control. It just means you're not the one in charge, and you're certainly not the one that's uh, making everything happen. And, and that lack of control causes us to do one of two things in our lives. It'll either cause some of us to just give up, and some people do that, or it'll cause us, and this is what it's really meant to do, is cause us to trust the person who truly is in control. You see, that's at the heart of what we're going to talk about in a um, 
very controversial and very politically incorrect passage that we're, we're going to be covering today um, here. And so I'm glad you're here, and you guys look great. And I, I just know that as we go through this message, for some of you, you're going to be invigorated. And for some of you, this is the last time you're ever going to be here. And, uh, and so anyway, I just want you to know either way, I love you. And uh, so anyway, but we, so we started this series of teachings uh, called Old School here at Calvary. And there's a reason why we called it uh, Old School. Uh, is because now we're working through the book of First Timothy, verse by verse. And just to give you a little bit of background, if you weren't here or you forgot or whatnot, Timothy... Young Timothy was Paul's protege. He was a young guy who was in his early 30s, and he was Paul's son in the faith. And so Paul had sent Timothy to pastor this church in the city of Ephesus that Paul had previously started. Now, Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was a very diverse city. It was a very diverse city socially. It was a very diverse city ethnically, and it was a very diverse city religiously. And while the culture there was very confused and constantly changing about what was right and true and good, Paul's message was pretty old school because he was sharing simple, unchanging truths that are like latitude and longitude in our lives. We can set and chart the course of our lives by them. Now, Paul is going to encourage Timothy in this book to fight the good fight. And he's not only encouraging Timothy, but even that church as well. Because as Christians, we don't fight like other people do. Other people sling mud and get personal and make everyone who doesn't agree with them their enemy, but that just isn't the Jesus way. Uh, What Christians do is that we love people that we disagree with. We stand for what's right and show them it's right by how we live and how we answer. And this is never truer than with what we're going to be covering today. Because listen, what we're going to share today flies in the face of everything that culture is telling us. And so we're going to tackle a few hot button topics. And here's my hope is that if you agree, awesome. I'm glad we're on the same page. If you disagree, that's okay. It gives us the opportunity to dialogue and learn because, by the way, you don't learn uh, anything when someone's telling you something you already agree with. Um, and, but if we disagree, let's disagree agreeably. And then, um, and if you're unsure, after you hear it all, you go, man, I'm unsure, that's okay too. Because at Calvary, this is a church where well, our goal here is to help you take your next step with God. And so the most important thing here is that you desire to walk with Jesus and we'll sort everything out as we walk together. So we're going to start in... 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 1, and here's what we read. He says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. We're going to look at three things in particular, but the first thing that we're going to look at, which sets the stage for us, is number one, I am called to pray for everyone. Everyone. We're called to pray for everyone. That means people you like and people you don't like, people you agree with and people that you disagree with. And when we talk about prayer, a lot of times we think the only people that 
can pray are people that are somehow uh, sophisticated in their prayers. And I remember when my wife and I first became Christians and we started attending church. I didn't grow up in church, um, but we started attending church. I was 19, she was 18. And um, we saw these people, man, and they, they were so, uh, we used to call them professional prayers uh, because they were so good at it. And they, these were people that like used sophisticated language. They used words I had never heard before. And they would quote the Bible in their prayer so they could like remind God of what he had already said, which I thought was like really good. And I remember one day, I remember one day I went to this like small group class. Uh, my wife was living in Tallahassee in college at the time. And so I had gone to uh, the, the, this class and the guy leading it was like a professional prayer. I mean, he was so good. I mean, he used a couple words I had never heard before. And so I don't remember all the prayer, but I remember one part in particular because my wife called me and we had a conversation about it. And so, but he prayed something like this, sovereign king of the universe, we come prostrate before thee in supplication before thy throne. And when you start throwing in like King James language, you've taken it top shelf. And so my wife, was, my wife and I were dating, and she's like, hey, how did your class go? I'm like, oh, the class was good, but we got to pray for the leader. I think he's having medical problems. She said, why? And I said, because he laid his entire prostate before the Lord, and uh, that can't be good. And um, I didn't know prostrate was not prostate, and so I learned that later. And uh, so you can track that down. Uh, but... But, then, but Paul opens by talking about four types of prayer, which once again, he, then he talks about who, but he talks about four types of prayer that I think is important for us to understand. He says, first of all, supplication, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks. What, what does that mean? Four types of prayer for us to understand and implement in our lives and how we pray. Uh, supplication are prayers of request. Uh, supplication is when we pray and ask for God's provision, direction, and help in our lives. It's where we unload all the stuff we've been carrying around, where we give God um, all the things that have been, you know, just distracting us by day and keeping us up at night. The second thing that he says when he talks about prayer, those are prayers of worship. Because that, that word that the Greek word that Paul uses for prayer is a word that's used in general for prayer, but it carries the idea of worship. That is knowing who God is when we pray. So when we pray something like, and it's always, I think, important for us to acknowledge who God is when we pray. We say, Lord, you created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. Nothing is too hard for you. Um, that helps us when we pray. When you pray like that, your perspective changes from seeing the problem as big to seeing God who's bigger than your problem. The third thing that he talks about is intercessions. And intercessions are prayers for others. That's when you go to prayer specifically for someone else, when you, um, you're praying specifically for another person. And people always ask me, and I'm so grateful for this, they'll always ask me and say, you know, Pastor Bob, how can we pray for you or your family? And I do appreciate that, but I always say the same thing. And uh, I'll say, look, if you want to pray for me, whenever you're praying for yourself, just add, and Pastor Bob too. And uh, you just throw that in. Unless you're praying to gain weight, keep me out of that mess. But anything else that you're praying for, you just throw me in there. Like, you know, and, and Pastor Bob too, throw him a bone. And uh, so anyway, and then uh, giving of thanks, these are prayers of gratitude. Now this is thanking God for who he is and what God has already done. I think one of the things that happens to us is that we miss out on what God is doing because we've forgotten. 
Like we've prayed for stuff and God has answered and then we forget because we don't go back and give thanks for what God has already done. You wanna do something that'll revolutionize your prayer life is start writing down your prayers, the things that you're praying for, and then go back and write the dates of when God answered those prayers. And I'm telling you, that is going to transform you. Um, But once again, God is working miracles in our lives and sometimes we forget because we don't slow down enough to be thankful. Now, it's with that attitude that this amazing chapter begins and Paul charges us to pray for ourselves and all people and those who are in authority. Now, let me tell you what that means. And when he says, I want you to pray, he says this, that prayer should be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Now, that means in our culture that you pray for the president whether you voted for him or not. That means you pray for everyone who's in authority whether you voted for them or not. Now, I know it's hard for us. I know it's hard because we have to pray for Republicans and Democrats and independents, and it's so much harder than what Paul had to deal with. Because when Paul wrote this, the Roman emperor at the time was named Nero. Caesar Nero was completely insane. I would say he was demon-possessed. This is a guy who would kill Christians just for sport. This is a guy who burned down half the city of Rome, blamed it on Christians, and the reason he did it is because he wanted to rebuild it the way he wanted it done. This is a guy who would dip Christians in oil, set them on fire in his garden while he drove naked in his chariot, yelling and screaming, you truly are the light of the world. This guy was insane. And Paul said, we have to pray for him. But I understand that we have it much worse than that. I I know that we had an orange man that tweeted mean things. And I know that that's worse. I know we have a guy now who's not even sure he's president. And so... You know, listen, every election, let me tell you this, every election, um, after it's over and we announce who won, I post this picture on social media or I just write it out and I'll say this. I write the same thing. I write, if you voted for him, pray for him, he needs it. If you didn't vote for him, pray for him, he needs it. And I quote this passage. And you know what happens every time I do that? People lose their ever-loving minds And you know why? Is because we've made our politics greater allegiance than our faith. Listen, if you want to know what the problem is, like the deep-seated problem in the church here in America, it's this, that we've come to interpret everything as a political statement. Right now, there are people in this room trying to figure out where I stand politically based on what I just said. And that's part of the problem. And listen, and I, and every, I, I get this all the time. And listen, there are people who call all the time and, uh, or they'll, they'll want to show up and, you know, hey, I'm running for this. Can I have a few minutes with the congregation? And hey, you know, I mean, I got a couple of these last week. And it's like, hey, you know, we're running for Congress. Can we, can we get your endorsement? And by the way, the answer is no, no matter what party you're from and all that. I'm just not, I'm not interested. Um, but then I'll get these emails like, Pastor Bob, I'm a Democrat Christian. Pastor Bob, I'm a Republican Christian. And I think, no, you're a, I don't get it, Christian. Um, Because the word Christian does not need a modifier. And the moment that you think it does, you don't understand what the word Christian means. And sometimes we think, oh, it doesn't, it's not, but why why pray for these people? It's not going to make a difference. Let me tell you the story of William Tyndale. And I know most of you don't know who he is, but... Um, There's a very sad and tragic book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
And um, if you ever like want to go into somewhat of a you know very sad place, then read that. It's about 400 pages of all Christians who were killed. Um, so it's like, oh, I'll read that tonight. Uh, that was required reading when I was in college. And so, and that's when I first learned about Tyndale and, and became somewhat fascinated with him. William Tyndale lived in the 16th century and uh, in England, was a believer in Jesus who spent much of his adult life translating the Bible into the English language, which had not been done. Now, you've got to understand, that was illegal at the time. Uh, if it wasn't uh, official church um, and, you know, having that was considered heresy. And the Catholic Church eventually hung him for heresy. And they, they said, Do you want, what are your last words? And he, he offered this prayer as the last words before they hung him and killed him. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. That's the last thing that he prayed. Allah, what Paul is telling us in 1 Timothy 2. Within three years, the king at that time, King Henry VIII, licensed the English Bible, which was Tyndale's translation. There were parts he wasn't able to finish because he was martyred, and it was completed by a guy uh, by the name of Miles Coverdale. And um, it was found everywhere in England within three years. Within 20 years, Henry VIII's grandson, King James I, funded a commission of 83 scholars who would translate the Bible into English. And in 1611, what is called the King James Version of the Bible or the authorized version of the Bible was completed. And it's called the King James Version, but 80% of it was Tyndale's translation of the Bible. That one prayer transformed the hearts of kings and those who were in authority. And this is the goal, according to what Paul says in verses four and five, that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So guess what? If you dislike someone, pray for them. Because you know it would help them greatly if you dislike them? Them coming to know Jesus. And the person in your life that's given you a hard time, pray that they would come to know Jesus. You know what happens? If they come to know Jesus, it's going to change everything. And if that's true for kings and people in authority, it's certainly true for regular people like you and me. Well, look at what he says in verse 8. He goes on. And he says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting or disputing, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now pause there, please, and give me your attention. Second thing I want to talk about that I think is important that, we're gonna, that Paul talks about, and that is that I'm called to model a changed life. And that is, I want you to remember the theme of this chapter, the, the, this idea that Paul builds on, that God desires all people to be saved and to know him. And, and it seems a little odd that Paul would couple these two things, and that is, Men not praying with wrath or disputing, and women not dressing provocatively. I mean, like, how are those two things go together? And, and yet, when we talk about it, it's going to make total sense. Because, once again, Paul is saying, who should we pray for? Kings and all men and all people who are in authority. And when I think about this, so why is it that he says, I want men praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, that is, with this, this violent anger, and without disputing, arguing? You see, when I, the best way to explain this is to give it to you in a picture. And whenever I think of this, I think of the prophet Jonah. Now, most of us know part of Jonah's story, the part where he gets swallowed by the fish. And I know some of you are like, I don't believe that really happened. Well, look it up because some, that just happened to someone last year. Um, and I know there's things going on last year, but you can look it up. That ha you Google it. Um, it just happened. But anyway, 
But the point is, is that Jonah is this prophet. He gets to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. These were bad people. I mean, they were rough. These were people that uh, cities would commit mass suicide when they saw that the Assyrians had encamped them. Um, and they were under siege by the Assyrians because they were just so brutal. And so uh, Jonah hates these people. That's why he didn't want to go. So, you know, God, uh, even though he was going in the other direction, God gets him to the city of Nineveh via the fish. The fish barfs him out onto the shore. And then he shows up looking as rough as you can imagine. And he preaches what I think is probably the worst sermon of all time. He says this, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Peace out. And he just drops the mic and leaves. In fact, he's so convinced, he just um, exits the city and sits on a hill right outside of the city. And he's like, man, I want to pop some popcorn because I just want to watch this city get destroyed. But something happens with that message. And from the king all the way down to the common people, they repent. And they call on God. And God says he's not going to destroy the city. And this wonderful thing happens in the city of uh, Nineveh. And when he sees that the people call out to God, Jonah's not happy. He is furious because Jonah didn't want God to save these people. He wanted God to judge these people. And see, this is what happens when we pray with wrath. We're not asking God to save these people. We're arguing and disputing in this violent passion that we have. It's not going to change us. That's why twice in chapter 4 of Jonah, God asks Jonah this very simple question, and you'll see it in your notes in Jonah chapter 4, verse 4. He says it again in in verse 10. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Like, dude, why are you so upset? Let me explain it this way. Um, About seven or eight years ago, I was flying to California to go speak at this conference in uh, Los Angeles. And I get to the airport, I check in, and back then... American used to have this promotion where if you got there at the right time, you could upgrade from your coach ticket to first class for 50 bucks. Now, this is a five-hour flight, and I'm like, 10 bucks an hour, I'm, I'm, I'm upgrading. So they gave me the option. I paid the 50 bucks, and I upgraded to first class. And I thought, this is great because the truth is I was speaking at this conference the next day, and I wasn't done with the message that I was going to share. And it was, they wanted me to teach on evangelism and reaching people and all that. And so I sit down in my seat and I feel this tap on my shoulder. And this woman says, Pastor Bob, I'm so glad we're on this flight together. And uh, she says, I was a little nervous about flying, but once I saw you get on board, I knew it was going to be okay. And I said, well, I'm happy to be your good luck charm. And uh, so we talk for a few minutes and then I sit down, the plane takes off. I get my laptop out and I'm ready to kind of crank out this message that I got to finish. And then she taps me on the shoulder and she says, Pastor Bob, I have a question. My family isn't Christian, and and sometimes they have these questions that they ask me, and I really don't know the answer. And uh, so could you help me as a, you know, how would you answer this? So we start talking back and forth for a few minutes. I share some things with her, and she's very happy. And then um, I, uh, you know, she goes back doing her thing. I go back to this message that I'm trying to write, and then I feel a tap on my shoulder, close the laptop, and then um, she starts telling me about her coworkers. And for the record, her coworkers are a mess. Um, and she's like, they, they, are, they are not Christians. They're making terrible decisions. And how do I, I don't know how to answer them without sounding judgy. And, uh, and so we talk for a few minutes and I answer her questions. And then I turn around and, and I'm, I'm going to um, 
you know, I'm gonna try to open up, open up the laptop, try to find where I was, and then um, I get a tap on the shoulder again, and, and, she, and I turn around, and she's now got her Bible open. And she's like, Pastor, I just started reading the Bible. I have no idea what this means. I mean, can you explain this passage to me? And so now I'm like, okay, so I explain the passage to her, tell her, read a couple other things. And so then, now I turn around. I go to open my laptop again, and by now, now I'm complaining. And I'm like, God, why didn't you just leave me in coach? I could have been in perfect peace, um, closer than should be allowed to two other human beings. And, um, but you know, now here I am and I can't get anything done and I'm got to teach this thing uh, tomorrow and I don't know what I'm going to do. If I don't finish, I have to finish. And you know, anyway, so I'm, I'm going on uh, on all this. And so I'm just kind of sitting there praying my prayer of complaint. And then, and I feel the tap on the, on the shoulder and, um, and I just, I didn't move. And then she tapped me again. I just, I went like that, like I was asleep. And because uh, that, you know, they say that if you're ever attacked by a bear, you should just act like you're dead. And I figured if that works for a bear, it's got to work for someone else in, in, in that's sitting behind me. And so, so anyway, I just act like I was asleep. And then she just, she just let it alone. And so then after a while, then I opened up my laptop and I started working. And then I looked back and then she fell asleep. And I knew at that moment there was a God in heaven who loved me. And... Um, so then I get my computer out, and I'm like, I got to start from the very beginning. And so I, I go to the, to the top of, of my notes, and I'm, my whole thing is about evangelism and reaching people. And my whole point at the beginning is if, if you're going to reach people, you have to love people. And that's when I felt God tapping me on the shoulder. And God was giving me a picture of my attitude, and it was the picture of Jonah. And it's like, and it's the p- thing that Paul says we have to fight against. And it's like, you can't pray with anger and pray for that person to come to know Jesus. And I was upset with this woman because she's reading the Bible and didn't understand what it meant. And God's like, "Um, isn't this the thing you wanted to spend your life doing? This is the thing that you prayed so many times. You wanted to teach my word. You wanted to reach people and help them grow. So why are you angry? And and listen, sometimes God blesses us and we start looking at the blessing as a curse. You prayed for years to have children and then God blessed you. And now you start seeing them as a hassle because they're driving you crazy and you got no time for yourself. And, it's, and, and, and you know what God's saying? Why are you angry? You wanted to get married and then God brought someone in your life and now per- that person does things that rubs you the wrong way. And God's saying, why are you angry? Didn't you want me to bring someone in your life that was eventually gonna sand off the rough edges and change and be part of the transformation? So why are you angry? You see, Paul is saying that, listen, prayers that elevate our perspective eliminate destructive emotions like anger and arguing. And I know it sounds weird, but it's totally connected to the heart behind what he says women should wear in verses 9 and 10. Because he says, in light of God wanting to save everyone, right, then in like manner, don't adorn yourself um, with what does he say? Braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing? I mean, why is that? Because God wants you to wear a potato sack. That's why. Um, no, no. But you know, why does he say these things in particular? You're like, I'm not allowed to wear braided hair. I didn't know that. Or if I have a gold chain, I didn't know that was wrong. Um, and, and so, no, listen, it's because this is exactly how the uh, women that were part of these temple prostitutes, that would, there was a thousand women that would go out every night uh, in Ephesus uh, to bring, quote-unquote, worshipers into the temple. And this is exactly how they dressed. 
And what Paul is saying, don't confuse people, that culturally connects people to a pagan temple or pagan worship. There's nothing wrong with women dressing nice. But, and by the way, if you have an issue with that, then you're going to have a real problem with Revelation 21 when it says that when the bride of Christ, the church, is presented to Jesus, it's presented as a woman who is adorned in, like, like a bride for her wedding. So, once again, this is a cultural issue that was happening. But the, the, this particular issue was, a, was an issue of culture. But the modesty issue is a bigger principle because it's talked about in other places in, in the New Testament. So that's the bigger deal, is the principle of modesty. And once again, sometimes, and once again, there are church movements that take this way too far, and they, they, they want to make women dress in very frumpy kind of ways. And I'm just going to tell you this, frumpiness is not godliness, and looking terrible is not godly. Um, but at the same time, here's what I would say, and this is maybe the middle of the road, leave some things to the imagination. Um, because the man that you want to love you, court you, and win your heart, Listen, uh, you want him to love you for who you are, uh, not just how you look. And you want to make sure that the attention that you get is the right attention from the right person. Okay, now we're setting all of that up. And this is where I'm going to get myself into some trouble. So let's read verse 11. So he says, verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, last thing, and we're going to spend some time talking about this, and that is I'm called to honor God's design. Now, I don't know if there's a passage in the New Testament that is more misunderstood than this one. Remember Paul's theme. Paul's theme is that in, in chapter two is that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that has to color everything that we read in this chapter and the conversation that continues in chapter three that we'll look at next time. But so why must, as Paul says, why must a, learn, a woman learn in silence with all submission? Now there's a couple of reasons, but here's the first one. And that is this, because in silence and in all submission is how everyone learns. Right now, Everyone is silent, submitted to the teaching of God's word. But imagine there's somebody in the back of the room and they're, they're, they're on their phone ordering a pizza. And they're like, dude, I'm already hungry, man. Let me just order it. I'll Uber Eats it to my house and I'll make it there by the time the person drops it off. And, and they're in the back on the phone. What? So what's the problem? They're, they're not silent and they're not in submission, which means they're not learning anything. And so the question becomes, so if everyone has to be silent and in submission to learn. I think we're all, we all recognize that. The real question that we have to ask is, why is Paul singling out women here? And that is due to what was happening in the temple of Diana. Now, I mentioned this in our first message a few weeks back, but if you weren't here, one of the things that is important to note is that the temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was destroyed around 400 AD by a guy named John Chrysostom. And um, we'll talk about that some other time. But uh, in the temple of Diana, this, the, the worship there had permeated the culture in Ephesus. There were people who were coming to know Jesus that had worshipped in the temple of Diana and were trying to bring those values into the church. But I want you to notice something. The command that Paul gives here, he doesn't give anywhere else. If you were with us in 1 Corinthians, uh, that series that we finished a few weeks ago, uh, 
But Paul talks about women praying in the church, women prophesying in the services. So some of this conversation that we're talking about is cultural because they were dealing with something locally in the temple of Diana where women dominated men. They were taught that men and women were not equal because women had, were given special access to the goddess and were given special privilege to receive instruction directly from the goddess. And by the way, if you want to know, this is what Diana looked like. Um, and so this is, um, you know, this idea of, you know, she's the goddess of fertility. That's why she's multi-breasted. And uh, every time I see a picture of Diana, I just always have this thought, and that is that less is more. And, um, and if you don't understand what that means, your wife will explain it to you later. And so, but anyway, so that's what, that's what Diana looked like. But Paul is saying that men and women are equal in God's sight, but have different roles. And men and women both need to be silent when there's teaching. Now, verse 12 is a little more challenging because it imposes on our modern sensibilities. But it's an important one to understand the order of things. The first is there's two issues that are important to note about this verse when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over uh, a man. There's two issues here. That is what is meant by teaching and what is meant by authority. First thing that we need to note is that not only because of what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians, where we see women praying, women prophesying, um, women uh, in the New Testament, you see them teaching. In Acts 18, there's a woman named Priscilla and her husband Aquila that you see them teaching this powerful communicator named Apollos, teaching him about Jesus because all he knew was about John's baptism. So he heard John the Baptist speak and then started going around the Greek world talking about repentance because the Messiah is coming. You can only imagine when Priscilla and Aquila, like, hey, you know the Messiah is coming? He was already here. You just missed it. And so you can imagine him being filled in on what happened. And then that guy ended up becoming the pastor of the church at Corinth for a time and then was uh, led in Ephesus as well. So, so the people at Ephesus would have known Apollos. Uh, in Romans chapter 16, Paul commends uh, this, this woman named Junia who's listed among the apostles or the missionaries. So this is someone who's teaching. Uh, there's also a woman named Phoebe. Uh, in Romans 16, who was uh, a woman who was a deacon in the church. In Titus chapter 2, which we taught a couple of years ago, uh, it commands older women to teach younger women. So if women are seen teaching in the early church, then it, this can't mean teaching in general, be, be, but there's something underneath it. That is the Greek word that's used helps us understand it. The Greek word is this word didasko, which is used sometimes for teaching in general, but in the Greek culture, it's also referred to, uh, in, in, the, in the secular sense, it was, it was referred to as the director of a Greek play, was someone who would didasco. They would tell the actors how to say their lines. A French, essentially, they were framing the message of the play. And if we were to take that idea in the church, we would say that this is the person who frames the message of the church theologically. And, and here at Calvary, there's one person who teaches theology. That's me. That's the role of the senior pastor, is to teach theology to God's people. And our other pastors, and there are other pastors here on staff who are amazing, and they communicate well, they encourage, and they teach, but there's one person who has the role of teaching doctrine, and that is me. Now, in fact, when we get a little bit later in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to differentiate between pastors who do one thing and pastors who do another, but let me give you a little sneak uh, preview. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in Doctrine. By the way, didaskala, same word. And that's what's being referred to in chapter 2, verse 12. I don't see an issue 
with a woman teaching others. My wife and I teach every year at our couples retreat, and I can assure you that people are way more excited to hear from her than they are to hear from me. Right? It's like we hear this guy all the time, and then we want to hear. It's like if you can stay married to him, we want to hear from you because you, met, you let us know it's possible if you can deal with this knucklehead. And so now, but the issue here that's being talked about is teaching doctrine and setting the core, teaching theology that sets the course of the entire church. Now, but let's talk about authority. Church operates in the same pattern as home. That's why this, once again, one of the issues that happens in the church, which 1 Corinthians talks about, let everything be done decently and in order. Church operates in the same pattern as home. At home, the husband is supposed to lead through sacrifice, and a wife supports that loving leadership by trusting him. But let me tell you what sometimes we hear that and what we sometimes we think that means. When my son Xander, Xander's 12 now, but when Xander was about 18 months old, um, he started walking really early, probably about seven months, eight months, and, uh, but he didn't start talking until he was three. And so he just kind of gave us more like caveman, like, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> that's all he said until he was almost three years old. And so anyway, so that's, you good? <clears throat> good? <clears throat> you know, so we kind of learned to interpret the grunts. And, um, but listen, this kid at such a young age could climb anything. So his, he had gotten this in his head that he wanted to climb and stand on top of the entertainment center. So what he would do is, and the entertainment wasn't too tall, but I mean, it was probably about this high, you know, three, four feet up, or I guess about three feet high. So he would climb on the subwoofer that we had and then climb on top of the, uh, on top of the entertainment center. And then he would turn around and go, ah! and start screaming because he had conquered the mountain. And so anyway, so we solved that problem by taking the subwoofer and putting it on top of the entertainment center. So what he did was he, would t he took the toy box that we had in the living room and he would dump it all out, flip it over, climb on top of the bottom of the toy box, and then climb on top of the entertainment center and be like, ooh, in whatever grunt language that he spoke at the time. So then we got rid of the toy box. So then... He took this R2-D2 chair that he had, this little like cushion chair, and he flipped it over and it turned into like a ramp. So he would just start crawling and climbing and he would just go straight up to the top of the entertainment. You know, whenever he was done, uh, he sounded like one of the Tusken Raiders from Star Wars. And so anyway, a few people got that joke. I appreciate that. I really do. The rest of you have homework. Um, so what happens is, is that now... We then take the, the R2-D2 chair away. So then one day me, uh, Xander figures out that there are drawers in this entertainment center. So then he opens the drawers and realizes these drawers can also double as stairs. So he pulls out and he starts climbing the drawer slash stairs on his way up to the top of the entertainment center. And then his older sister, who was about four at the time, she grabs him and just throws him to the ground and says, no climbing on the entertainment center. Needless to say, Xander starts crying. And um, I walk in and uh, I ask Mia what happened. And she's like, dad, it's okay. I took care of it. Xander wanted to climb up the entertainment center, but I just pushed him down and said no. And I said, Mia, uh, don't push your brother. Next time, let mommy or I know and we'll take care of it. And she's like, uh, okay, dad, but I really don't want to do that. I prefer pushing him. And so <laughs> now, and sometimes, listen, the point is sometimes we have that view of leadership. And that we have that view of a husband leading or um, a man leading in the church where, you know, we think they're, that they're, what they're trying to do is push us down rather than build us up. The reality is real leadership 
is serving other people. And that's true in your home and it's true in the church. It's not about getting your own way. It's about sacrificing what you want for the sake of others. Leaders don't exist to selfishly call the shots and have people serve us. No, instead, God is challenging both men and women here. And this is what's really important. And here's why. Because most men, by nature, won't lead. And women, because they are so responsible, they will take on everything and wear themselves out. Now, let me tell you this. I've been a pastor for more than two decades. And in 20 years, 20 plus years of serving in leadership and helping couples and and all of that, um, I am yet to meet. Now, there may be one out there, but I'm yet to meet a wife that comes home and spends hours on end uh, playing video games and working on her hobbies. I'm yet, there may be one out there, but I'm yet to meet one. Instead, what happens is, is that, no, what happens is a woman Uh, because she has such a high sense of responsibility. She works. She'll come home and cook. She'll come home and clean. She'll come home and help the kids with homework. She'll come home and do the groceries. She'll pay the bills while the guy is resting because he too worked a seven and a half hour shift. Um, and, and, And let me tell you something. Christian woman, listen to me. Don't let him do that. Don't let him do that because if you do, you are gonna kill yourself in the process and you're hurting him. Let him be the man God created him to be. Oh, but I got all these plates spinning. I know. And you might have to let those plates fall and let him pick them up. And you know what's going to happen if you do? You are going to find peace. And that's why in the church, it's the same way. It's a call for men to be responsible and step up and be godly husbands and godly leaders. And because the women are so responsible, we know they're going to serve even without being asked. And that's why the Bible challenges men to be pastors or or elders. Um, And and once again, that is clearly stated in the New Testament, that it's men that are supposed to be pastors and elders. And it means that we're supposed to lead in a loving and sacrificial way. Now, it's worded very strongly in this passage as a response to those people who had once worshipped in the temple of Diana and now come to know Jesus, and they're confused about how things are supposed to work. But listen because they had come out of a temple where women did everything and men were not allowed to do anything. And that's not, a, that's not simply a cultural thing because Paul addresses this elsewhere in the New Testament, giving it a broader application than just that local context. And that's why Paul then brings up our first parents because he's talking now about this idea of the, the goddess Diana giving special revelation to women. And he says, look, that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and, and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived. And there's two truths that Paul is sharing here. One is that the woman was deceived, but the man just outright disobeyed. And he wasn't deceived, he was rebellious. And that deception and rebellion are what brought sin and death into the world. And by the way, let me say this, and I think this is important to understand, especially in light of the very confused culture in which we live in. No one No one has done more for the cause of women than Jesus of Nazareth. No one. Now, and if you've been around Calvary, we've talked about this. In the ancient world, women were not only not equal to men. In in many instances, women were not even allowed to testify in court. They had no standing culturally. And then Jesus comes along, and you know what he does? He allows women to follow him, to be his disciples. And the Christian faith took women that had no standing culturally and presented them as equals in the sight of God, and the sight of other believers. In fact, Paul, speaking to another church, would say it this way. 
You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, politicians, they can talk about the war on women all they want, but no one has done more for the cause of women societally than the person of Jesus. So if you want to be, you want to embrace women's equality, become a Christian. Now, before I leave this topic, let me talk about one, one other thing. I want to tell you about Tom Holland. Um, not this Tom Holland, who I'm a big fan of, by the way, but not this Tom Holland. I want to talk about this Tom Holland. There he is. Now, you don't, probably don't know who he is. Now, this guy is not a Christian. He's actually an atheist. And in 2020, um, he wrote a book, this fascinating book, In Defense of Christianity. Now, I know in 2020, you had, there was a few other things going on, and you probably missed this one. But uh, he wrote this book in defense of Christianity, and I, I want to read you a part of it. Listen to what he says. He says, simply, the ancients were cruel, and their values utterly foreign to me. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide, uh, uh, infanticide was common. The poor and weak had no rights. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity transformed the world. And then he says this. Uh, he writes, social justice warriors who despise the Christian faith rest on a foundation of Judeo-Christian values. Those who make arguments based on love, tolerance, and compassion are fundamentally borrowing from Christian arguments. As a friend of mine says, people who disagree with Christianity's position on most things have to borrow from God to make their point. And that's why the last verse here is so powerful, and yet it's, it's misunderstood because it's connected to the culture, and sometimes we don't have the background. But when he says, um, when he talks about deception, and then he says, but she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. It's, it's, it's beautiful. With all this talk about what men are supposed to do and what men are called to do, he mentions the one thing that only women can do, and that is give birth and influence. You see, every man that's ever done, ever done anything of significance has had the influence of a mom who taught him, corrected him, and encouraged him. And it's worded this way because in that culture, women were taught that pregnant women were called to call out on the goddess Diana. Now, the goddess Diana was not just the goddess of fertility. That's why she's multi-breasted. But she's also uh, the kind of goddess of midwives. And so she was seen as this divine midwife. That if, and, and once again, in that, in, at that time in history, being pregnant, I mean, there was a 50-50 chance that you wouldn't make it through the pregnancy and die giving childbirth. And so they were taught, you call on the goddess Diana and she'll save you. And so Paul says, no, women of God are saved because they call on God. Because one woman might have been deceived. And through her deception and man's rebellion, they assisted in bringing sin into the world. But now every woman has the opportunity to lead humanity out of sin by teaching their kids to walk with God. You see, when someone walks in here um, and, and I get to pastor them, they're already a mess. When I walked into church at 19 years old, I was already a mess because life messes us up. But you know, when a mom gets them, they're fresh out of the oven. And they are so ready, like a sponge, ready to learn, absorb, and be influenced by the faithfulness of a godly mother. 
And listen, we live in a culture that is very confused about gender and who is a man and who is a woman, and these people honestly deserve our compassion. But Christians should be very clear on issues of gender and roles and that men and women are both created and we're both image bearers of the God who created us and loves us. But when we embrace how God created us as men and women, when we embrace the roles and responsibilities and the giftings that God has given to us, there is joy. And listen, it brings freedom and joy that our culture has been incapable of finding because they have made a decision that we have to destroy everything. That's the only way to be free. And so you know what they've done? They've destroyed everything. And you know what? They still aren't happy. And how could that even be possible? They've destroyed everything because they've learned something that freedom from all of this doesn't bring the joy that we're looking for. Instead, it's freedom for embracing how God created us, being sacrificial toward our spouse and denying ourselves. That's where all the joy is found. Mutual submission, submitting to one another, that's where all the joy is found. Both husbands and wives submitting to Jesus and honoring their spouse is where all the joy is. People submitting to godly leadership and godly leaders submitting to God and serving God's people is where all the joy is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I know I wrote 1 Corinthians, that was my bad, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, not that we want to rule over your faith, but we want to work with you for the increase of your joy. And another translation says, um, not that our desire is to rule over your faith, but we want to be partakers of your joy. And that, to me, is the perfect picture of what leadership is. And I know that this idea of mutual submission makes us nervous because we think the other person is going to abuse our kindness and, and think that, that, well, they're just going to take advantage of us. And that's why so few people try it. And that's why so many cult, uh, couples and so many churches have deep problems. But someone has to go first. Listen, neither a marriage or a church ever works when we try to leverage our spouse or leverage others for our benefit. Jesus taught us something different. Jesus was the one who leveraged himself for the benefit of others. That's the only way a marriage works. That's the only way that a church is healthy. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but listen, if you want more joy than you think should be legally allowed in your marriage, in your relationships, in your church, in your life, then try it. And you're going to find what so many of us have found to be true, that that's where all the joy is found. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you how you challenge us, that, Lord, even when the culture is confused, we can find steady and faithful truths from your word that really can be like latitude and longitude and guide our lives, guide our faith, guide our families, and guide our future. And so we pray, Lord, help us to be people that have answers for those who are unsure, who are confused, who have tried to destroy everything to be happy and yet have found none of it. Help us to display the kind of joy that surpasses understanding and that, God, you want to work and transform our lives and the lives of everyone that we know and love. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. 
You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.